everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Jim Marks, a veterinarian at the University of Pennsylvania. He recently joined us for a webinar on improving the care and use of mice in biomedical research with a focus on the pharmacology behind the effects of anesthetics on respiration. Let's jump in. Would you suggest doing a pilot experiment with new animal models or knockout mice where you don't know their quote-unquote arrest threshold to determine that threshold? Yeah, that's a really good idea because there's so many variables that are going to affect the amount of anesthesia and the type of anesthesia that's going to be best for your experiments. We genetically breed mice to be different. So while we may be affecting a protein that we think is just going to be in the liver or just be in the immune system, we really can't be surprised when, lo and behold, it has effects on the anesthesia, responsiveness to anesthesia that we're giving. So there's a lot of variability there. In our animals, our different strains of mice have been bred to be different. Also, the person doing the surgery is a profound variable um, that's going to affect things. If you have someone who has really extensive mouse surgical experience, they're probably going to be much quicker with the procedure. They will probably also have much less surgical stimulation or painful stimulation than someone who's doing this for the first time or doesn't have much experience. And you we're going to need to give more anesthesia to that when that person doesn't have much experience. So there's several variables to consider. So getting a baseline of a couple pilot animals to make sure that the animal is in that ballpark range of what we're expecting is a really, really good idea. Fantastic. Yes, definitely. You want to shorten that procedure as much as possible. Okay. So this next question here is, while adequate ventilation is critical, respiratory patterning and cardiorespiratory coupling are also impaired when using inhaled anesthetics. Do you have any guidance for minimizing these confounders? Really? No, I don't. And I'd love to, as we do our experiments, we see respiratory patterns that are different, but it's really difficult to try a really good assessment until the changes are really profound. I think you're going to find that the patterns of breathing also are very different in your inhalant anesthetics, where they are going to be much more intermittent, and you're going to see much more deep breaths uh, associated with your inhalant anesthetics, whereas the respiration when you're giving your injectables tends to be much more shallow and, and as we've discussed, much more rapid. But it tends to, in my experience, and we've never tried to quantify this or really been able to quantify this, it tends to be a much more smooth transition when you're going from awake to a surgical plane of anesthesia with your injectables than with your inhalants. Because sometimes with your inhalants, you got to keep an eye on the mouse and you're kind of wondering, is this normal? And the vast majority of time, it does settle out to a nice and steady respiratory rate, you know, usually somewhere around 60s, as we've discussed. Once you start to 
to see really significant changes in the respiratory pattern. Of course, just like with our other species, that's a really advanced sign. And certainly once things start to get to where they're agonal, then that's obviously a really advanced sign. As far as cardio, cardiovascular monitoring, we are doing ECGs in our anesthetized mice. Some of the mice occasionally will see VPCs or atrial premature contractions, but we've never really uh, tracked down any that are significantly worth considering treating in mice that, that have survived. But we're pretty new to a lot of the uh, ECG analysis, and we've been doing it mainly with our inhalants. So with our injectables, we really need to look a little bit more in detail on that. But as far as the cardiovascular patterns, um, I, I don't have a lot of information on that at this point in time. And unfortunately, you know, ECG monitoring in an anesthetized mouse it, it takes specialized equipment and it is much more challenging. So I don't think that's going to be something that most labs are routinely doing for their anesthetized mice. Okay. The next question here is, well, I'm going to combine two questions because they're kind of similar. So the first part of this question is, do you have resources for the quote unquote normal values for heart rate and respiration rate for rats under anesthesia, inhalant and injectable? No, I don't. But I, we, it's interesting because here at UPenn, I expect most universities We've shifted away from rats, so we have surprisingly few rats on campus. We, we definitely have a few rooms of them, but I have much less experience with that. There are several rat papers, and I know Shalwa Pacharanzak at Stanford has done a lot of papers with, with rat anesthesia, and I expect those would have normal values for the rat. But I expect the trends of, of having a lower respiratory rate with your inhalants uh, than your injectables is something that will hold up across species. It's just much less noticeable as we get to the larger species because the rates are all going to be lower, you know, in your dogs and cats and monkeys. So seeing that big difference between the respiratory rate with your anesthetic protocol will be take more of a subtle analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And definitely something to consider for future studies for sure. Okay. The second part of that sort of question is all of the things that you mentioned in your presentation for monitoring mice. Are these recommended for rats as well, or should people using rats or like larger rodents be considering using another monitoring method? The closer we can get to what we currently do for dogs and cats, the better. One of the advantages for rats is that some of the pulse oximetry devices, which we use in our dogs and monkeys, the rat is large enough that those are effective when anesthetizing a rat. They, most of those devices we try and use about mice just aren't effective. So we really found that we really need to use a mouse-specific pulse oximeter in the mice. Things like blood pressure are really hard to get in your rodent species because they don't have a limb which can easily get a cuff or plethysmography reading and that kind of thing. Um, also, that if you're starting to think about trying to get a direct arterial line into them, that's much more challenging. So again, I, I think the pulse oximetry and respiratory rate monitoring are, are pretty readily available in the rat. But once we start to get into some of the more subtle things like blood pressure monitoring, it's challenging just finding a device that can accurately measure that in a routine setting. The other thing is, um, again, end-tidal CO2, which again, there's some devices which can do that in the mouse and could also do it in the rat, I assume. But the problem is most of the time we don't intubate 
our rats. So getting really accurate values with that will be challenging. But as we move forward and companies uh, develop more of this technology, that you know certainly is something we can hopefully develop in the future. But for rats now, mainly, I think we're for routine situations. I think your uh, pulse oximetry respiratory rate, pulse oximetry also gives us heart rate, is probably the best we're going to do unless your lab is going to invest in, in some specialized equipment. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes specialized equipment is required, especially for cardiac stuff, but especially if you're doing something like injectable, it becomes a little bit harder to justify for sure. Okay, this next question here is an advice question. They're asking, what point do you extubate your mice and stop providing supplemental oxygen? So I guess like how long after the procedure or during the procedure? Our studies are designed to model mice that are being routinely anesthetized. And here at UPenn and I assume in most institutions, mice aren't getting routinely intubated. So we don't typically intubate our mice for our studies. With most species, once the animal starts to chew or, or becomes awake, then you're going to be intubated, remove the tube. That would be a little more challenging in the mouse because their teeth are so sharp that they could easily break off that tube. So I don't have a lot of experience or information to give on extubating mice. But it is a procedure that once you do it a few times with a little practice is certainly something that can be done pretty routinely. Um, if your lab wants to invest the time in learning how to do that, or if you want to really pr protect the airways, that it is a really good procedure to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are there are some tools that help with that and learning that procedure quickly and efficiently. Yeah, there's some really nice kits okay. which uh, will will help make it quite easy. And like with every procedure, the first few doesn't go too smoothly, but after a little bit of practice, that can be quite a routine procedure. Yeah, definitely. Especially in mice, it is a, a skill that you must practice. Okay, this next question here. A lot of people have had this question, so that's why I want to address it. For supplemental oxygen, would you recommend 100% O2 or 21% O2, which is just room air? And for delivery of isoflurane, there are some anesthesia machines that use room air for delivery versus tank or concentrator oxygen at differing percentages. Uh, what is your like strongest recommendation for mice specifically? Yeah, our recommendation is 100% supplementation, uh, whether using injectable or gas anesthesia. Many of the facilities here at Penn use 21% compressed air as the carrier gas. And as we saw in our studies, those mice are profoundly hypoxic, hypoxia that's profound enough that if we saw it in another species, it would kind of make us freak out. We usually don't know that it's happening in our mice, but once we can, if we can supplement them, just about all of our mice go up to the 95 to 100% pulse ox readings and are quite stable. So yes, I don't think supplementing with 21% oxygen is going to, you know, we know it doesn't help with the, with, with using the inhalant anesthetics. And I don't expect flowing by 21% oxygen in a mouse, which has received um, injectable anesthesia would make a meaningful difference other than just them um, inhaling the 21% oxygen. So if we're going to take the time to supplement them, I think 100% oxygen is the way to go. If there are some procedures are very, very long procedures uh, and where you may start to think about is 
oxygen uh, toxicity a possibility. Under those cases, much as they would do in humans, I, I think 50% oxygen may well be a suitable substitute for that to prevent that. I don't have any experience with 50% oxygen, but I expect that would do a pretty good job at elevating the uh, pulse ox readings of the mouse and keeping them out of that dangerously hypoxic range and keep them up in the 90s for their pulse oximeter and above the 60 millimeters of mercury oxygen tension in the blood. So, uh, yeah, so I think 100% oxygen supplementation is the way to go. And that can be challenging if you're uh, doing longer procedures or MRI procedures where you can't bring an oxygen tank in you know, conveniently, then you're having to have the tubing to deliver the oxygen from outside the room into the animal while it's in the imaging modality. But I think what we saw, even at low doses of anesthesia, they are shockingly hypoxic and would definitely benefit in their survival by supplementing oxygen. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think also the flexibility of being able to choose between room air and any sort of compressed gas at whatever percent oxygen you choose is kind of a nice feature for, or a nice option to have, gives you a little bit more flexibility. This last question is about injectable anesthesia. So this person has asked, what is the best route for adipamazole? Adipamazole IV is contraindicated in larger species due to profound hypotension and is labeled for intramuscular. But since intramuscular is not so commonly used in mice, does IP administration cause the same type of hypotension as IV? And is sub-Q administration too low? In the study that we discussed during the talk, we delivered the drug intraperineally because we needed a really rapid effect because these mice had already progressed to becoming agonal. So when they were that far advanced, we didn't think that sub-Q administration be nearly adequate to get the response. For routine administration, we don't give anything IM in mice because the muscle mass is so small. For routine, I believe we typically go subcutaneously. The you have to be a little bit careful with adipamazole not to overdose them with that because we have had problems in the past. Now, we don't routinely monitor blood pressure, so I don't know that it was directly due to blood pressure, but the dosing, and I don't remember the dose of adipamazole we used off the top of the head, but it's in some of the lab animal formularies. It is a fairly safe conservative dose that you can give safely, and I believe sub-Q, if it's not an emergency procedure, would be adequate to get the animal going after the anesthetic event, but in an emergency situation, we gave it nearly because you really need that response. And I don't think we could reliably hit the veins of a mouse who's undergoing cardiac arrest or profound bradycardia or something like that. We never even tried to hit the veins in those mice because it's hard enough to hit, get an artery or, or a tail vein injection in a mouse when they're awake and conscious. When they're arresting, I think that would be really impossible. So nearly is the way we go in an emergency. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.